BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's 1986. Robin's taking the stage at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City. I would like to thank Imelda Marcos for her earrings. Thank you, Imelda. Thank you. The theater's ornate golden balconies and vast orchestra seats 4,000 people. And in an age before Netflix comedy specials, this is a very big deal. God, now I'm wondering, what, what the fuck am I doing here? This is incredible. How do you get to the Met? Money. Lots and lots of money. Behind Robin is a large Labo-M-type stagecoach that dominates the set. He's headed over to serenade it with the song The Wells Fargo Wagon from The Music Man. No, oh, that Wells Fargo Wagon, it's a coming down the street, so don't let it pass my way. Over the next hour and five minutes, Robin's going to deliver a powerhouse stand-up routine, one of his best ever. The Village Voices critic Andrew Saris calls it a virtuoso comedy hour that put Robin on a different planet from every other stand-up comedian. Stand-up is the one thing Robin has complete control over. And all the rest, well... I don't know. <laughs> but maybe along the way, you take my hand, tell a few jokes, and have some fun. Here, Robin extends his hand out as he would to his three-year-old son, Zach. Yeah. Come on, pal. You're not afraid, are you? Nah. Fuck it. <laughs> this is Knowing Robin Williams from Macmillan Podcasts. I'm your host, Christy Westgard. And I'm Dave Itzkoff. I'm a New York Times culture reporter, and I'm the author of a biography on Robin Williams called Robin. Last week, we left off with Robin and Valerie giving birth to their son, Zach. Robin and Valerie's relationship is on the rocks, and after the death of his friend, John Belushi, Robin's trying to turn over a new leaf. Valerie hires a nanny, Marcia Garces, to help add some stability to their lives. And Robin also cuts back on drinking and puts an end to his affairs with other women. But this reformed Robin has his limits. He's basically still very dedicated as a father to Zach, but the marriage to uh, to Valerie is still basically falling apart that he's having uh, for sure like you know pretty one one pretty major affair on, on the side. Robin had been on his best behavior for two years. The couple had earlier bought a home in Napa Valley to remove themselves from Los Angeles and all of its temptations, but Robin couldn't permanently withdraw himself from that scene. In 1984 at the improv in Los Angeles, he meets Michelle Tish Carter. She was a 21-year-old cocktail waitress, and they begin a casual fling. We have lust. Lust permeates our soul sometimes. Men, we are so driven by this lust that we have a violent streak that comes along with it. If we can't fuck it, we'll kill it. You know what I'm saying? He struggled with being faithful to Valerie and staying sober. But at the same time, he was also a loving father and a generous and socially conscious individual. His philanthropy and his left-leaning politics would soon be on display. 
Comic relief was to some extent a kind of ad hoc thing. It already existed in Britain and now they wanted to do it in the U.S. And HBO was still kind of a new thing in people's homes. And so that was a way for HBO not only to do something uh, for a good cause and help raise money for homelessness, which was, uh, you know, people were really becoming much more aware of in the United States, but also a way for the cable channel to kind of uh, flex its muscle a little bit and to show, look how many comedy talents we can bring together all under one roof. As HBO looked for hosts, Robin and fellow comedian Billy Crystal were natural fits. They shared the same manager and both had specials on the network. But there was still a missing piece. Uh, HBO certainly understood that they needed some diversity on the bill. It couldn't just be these two white dudes riffing all night. And that's where Whoopi came into the picture. That's Whoopi Goldberg. But she's kind of learning and figuring Billy out and Robin out in the course of hosting this live special that's going to go on for three or four hours. Whoopi Goldberg was a rising star who'd been legitimized with her most recent performance in The Color Purple, but she was a wild card. No one really knew what the chemistry between the three of them would be like on stage. Ultimately, the decision to make her a co-host paid off. By the end of the special, viewers had donated nearly $2.5 million, and comic relief became an annual tradition for HBO. It establishes Robin and Billy and Whoopi, first of all, as this kind of triumvirate that any time the two of them are together, you're kind of expecting to see the third. They have this kind of mostly easy give and take. If you look closely at the routines, usually somebody is the odd person out in a, in a given riff. But for the most part, they play together really well. And they become thought of as kind of the, the ambassadors of improv comedy for America. Yeah, what's we're getting older, I'm growing hair on my shoulder, yesterday I pissed a boulder. By now, Robin has been in Hollywood for about a decade. He's gaining more perspective about show business and can see the past era, which he called just a madhouse, for what it was. Drinking had made him bloated and overweight, and drugs had slowed him down. Call 911. I've fallen and I can't get off. He became more open about his cocaine use, something that he'd previously denied. He called it one of the most selfish drugs in the world. The world is as big as your nostril. As he embarked on a new chapter, he ended his affair with Michelle Tish Carter. But it was a messy split. This was somebody who was not ready to just kind of walk away from things. And Carter eventually filed a suit against Robin, and the terms of it kind of changed. That initially she had said that Robin had gotten her pregnant and she was trying to seek uh, a kind of child support from him. And when he wouldn't do that for her, then she said that he had given her herpes. And so... The circumstances were extremely embarrassing to Robin, just given that he was trying to sort of maintain a, a handle on his own public image, and this was uh, not in line with that. For Valerie, this affair was harder to handle than Robin's past transgressions because now there was a child. As their marriage imploded, Robin began going to therapy to come to terms with the end of his marriage. It was in 1986, against this emotional backdrop, that Robin performed his comedy special Live at the Met. 
Live at the Met ends up being a much more personal show for him in the sense that he is a lot more honest about uh, his sobriety and his struggles with drugs and alcohol. Damn. A little sip of Perrier here. I had to stop drinking alcohol because I used to wake up nude and hood in my car with my keys in my ass. <laughs> the thing that he is sort of wonderfully honest about and really speaking from the heart about is the experience of being Zach's father and what it's like to raise a young child and the real connection that he has with Zach and really observing him in a very uh, careful way and seeing his son already as this kind of unique human being with a personality and there's a great riff or routine that kind of recurs in a couple different places where he talks about basically Zach picking up the obscene vocabulary that Robin already has. And they imitate everything you do. I was driving in traffic, someone cut me off. I went, fuck it. From behind me, his little rocket seat, a voice went, fuck it. And it becomes a part of Zach's vocabulary too. All day long, he followed me around the house going, fuck it. They can kind of figure out the world together. Over the course of this comedy tour, Robin also finds support and a sympathetic ear from Marcia Garces. If you recall, she was initially hired on as Zach's nanny. She steadily began helping Robin to organize his own life and was soon promoted to his assistant. Marcia never came between Robin and Valerie during their marriage. She was not a homewrecker in any sense. There was no kind of uh, attraction or any kind of, you know, hangy-panky or anything like that between her and Robin. It was not until Robin's marriage to Valerie had really fallen apart and they had separated that Robin and Marcia started to see each other in a slightly different light. And when Robin starts doing uh, the work for his Live at the Met routine, for example, uh, that's when they start to become, I think, a little bit more aware of each other, a little more open to each other. Marsha was often the last person Robin saw before going on stage, and it became a tradition for her to give Robin a hug and tell him he could do it and that she loved him. To Marsha, it seemed like a small gesture, but it was transformative for Robin. He'd later recall, Marsha used to tell me I was a good person, and finally I believed it. Soon, the film industry would believe it too. When we come back from the break, Robin decides to put his career in the hands of one film director. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the mid-1980s, Robin's film career was in a bit of a dry spell. 
He'd done a few smaller projects like Moscow and the Hudson, which had a decent run. He also had fantastic misses like The Best of Times and Club Paradise. So he was still seen as a risky talent for a big studio to cast. It had always been an aspiration of Robbins to just be successful as a film actor, to know for himself that he could be a leading man and that that was going to be the trajectory that his career was going to go on and to to finally have a movie that was not just successful but that would be number one at the box office. Robin once described what he saw as a comedy food chain. At the top were Eddie Murphy, Bill Murray, and Steve Martin. The next level was more crowded with Tom Hanks, John Candy, Robin himself, and many others. You start to move down that ladder of of availability of scripts. You start to... uh, I mean, the, the word hot is, I mean, it become tepid. <laughs> it would be an unexpected film, Good Morning Vietnam, that would change this pecking order and place Robin on the top tier. Time to rocket from the Delta to the DMZ. Well, the whole movie and the character of Adrian Cronauer were basically created for him, that his managers, in a very active way, had sought out and scoped out this story, the real-life Adrian Cronauer, but knew that it had a certain potential uh, for Robin specifically. In the summer of 1987, Robin and the production team headed to Bangkok with a very aggressive timetable to release Good Morning Vietnam by Christmas. I spoke with the director, Barry Levinson, about the shoot. One of the earlier scenes that we did took place because he was a, a teacher you know, teaching English. And we we did a, a few takes in the morning. The Vietnamese playing students weren't that convincing to me. It's like they were saying the lines, but it wasn't alive. So we took a break, and it's, there's one of those moments you're outside, and it's like 100 degrees, and you wonder, what are we going to do? And I looked over, and Robin was under a porch with a bunch of the students, and, and they're talking, and he's talking, and uh, they're laughing, and he's laughing. And I went, well, well look, that's really, al- that's really alive because Robin has this enormous curiosity. And I thought, all right, well, that's what we have to get to. It was the key to the whole film because it's taking Robin's intelligence, his spontaneity, and his humanity and just unleash it. And so it's not all – Here's my line. Here's the line. Here's the line. It becomes just very, very free. It's kind of lucky that he got this kind of turning point in his career with you able to interact with him in a way that he probably didn't get to interact with other directors besides maybe um, Howard Storm with like Mork and Mindy. Um, It sounds like they had a back and forth, like Mm -hmm. a rapport. That was exactly what Robin needed was this back and forth. Well, it needs the back and forth and it needs the freedom. And and at the same time, there isn't an obligation that you're just supposed to be funny all the time. Robin always has a certain insecurity about him. You know, I'll never forget when we got back to uh, the States and, you know, we were shooting at an incredibly fast pace, you know, this and that. I mean, just flying through stuff. And... Uh, he called me and he said, listen, you know, about that radio stuff, you know, if it's not working right, you know, uh, you know, uh, we can do it here. I'll pay for the whole thing. You know, I said, Rob, I got so much material, you know, I'm going to have a hard time fitting it all in. And then, of course, the other part that was difficult for him, because in those things, he's a radio guy trying to be humorous, but he's not getting any feedback. 
So he, so he was always wondering, did that work? Does that work? You know, I said to Robin one day, I think we need to have a scene because, see, you're on the radio, so you never hear the laughs. So you don't know how important you are to the soldiers because you don't hear the laughter. And he said, well, what are we going to do about that? I said, wouldn't it be interesting? We'd have a scene. I said, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a traffic jam or whatever. And uh, the, the truck, you know, was filled with the soldiers. You, you do good morning Vietnam to them and get them excited. And then they're, they're, they're egging you on to do things. And you do it. And then you hear the laughs. Well, you guys, you take care of yourselves. I won't forget you. All right, guys. Let's take it back to the radio star. We're out of here. And then you you know that you're important, that you mean something to these guys who are, you know, thousands of miles away from home, you know, in this war and bogged down with all of the implications of that. After filming wrapped, Robin headed back home to San Francisco. And over the next few weeks, he bounced between SF and Tiburon to visit with his father, who was sick with cancer. Rob opened up to his son in his final days like never before, about the youthful aspirations he let go of, the collapse of his first marriage, and the regret he felt for not spending as much time with Robin and Lori. He had seen Robin start to come into success, certainly had seen the success of Mork and Mindy and and some of the other early roles in the comedy, and so he knew that things were starting to happen for Robin, that he had achieved quite a lot in that, and that he could finally sort of talk to Robin, especially in, you know, those last uh, weeks of his life and even the last days to say, like, you know, I am proud of what you've accomplished. And I I do see that you've become your own man. And and Robin could be honest with him and say, my marriage to Valerie is really kind of over. And, and you know, I, I don't want to disguise that from you. And that Finally, the, these two men can be open and relate to each other in a way that they never could before, and at least before it's too late, before Robin doesn't have that chance with him ever again. Rob died on October 18, 1987. It was now up to Robin to realize his full potential. He put a lot of personal pressure on Good Morning Vietnam, but post-production for the film was proving challenging. Good Morning releases about 10 years from the war itself, and there's apprehension around, is this content going to be something that people want to be watching right now? Is it too soon? So can you describe just the apprehensions? We were supposed to come out at around Christmas time, and then uh, the Disney people got real nervous and thought, you know, this may not be good. So then they, then they delayed the film, and then there was that period, that moment of like, I don't know, are we going to come out or what? And that sort of hung over everything. By chance, on the Friday night that it opened, we were I was riding with my wife down Sunset. And the Cinerama Dome, she says, oh, let's pull over, you know, let me, let me see, you know, how many people there. It was near 8 o'clock, I think, which is the first show, uh, first evening show. And uh, there was like eight people in line. And I went, oh, God, this is like a disaster, you know. Eight to ten people were in line, you know. And so um, my wife, Diana, <clears throat> said, well, let me go in. So she goes in and she comes back like 10 minutes later. And she said, uh, it's sold out. And the 10 o'clock is sold out. 
And I said, well, then who are the, like, the 10 people in line? She says, they're lining up for the midnight show. And that was a moment like, oh, maybe we're, maybe we're going to be all right. The reviews for Good Morning Vietnam were glowing, especially towards Robin, who would end up winning a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Motion Picture for his performance. He then secured one of the highest honors in his career so far, an Oscar nomination. He was in contention with heavyweights like Jack Nicholson and Michael Douglas. He established himself as a major force in, in the film world. Robin's return to the public interest opened him up to more scrutiny, too, though. Over the course of Good Morning Vietnam, he and Marsha had become romantically involved. In the same week as his Oscar nomination, People magazine published a damaging article titled A Comics Crisis of Heart. There's there's the whole story of the People magazine article, which really basically was trying to tell people that, like, somehow Marsha had come between Robin and Valerie, and that really was not the case, but... Because that was really the first way that a lot of people got introduced to Marsha and even had any sense that his marriage to Valerie was over, that perception became impossible for them to ever shake or to undo in people's minds. On April 1st, Robin and Valerie publicly announced their split, but the damage was done. Then on April 11th, Robin lost out to Michael Douglas for the Oscar. So Robin and Marsha stepped back from L.A. for a bit to spend time in New York, where Robin was working on a stage play of Waiting for Godot with Steve Martin. Abortion, morphine, sewer rat, curate, cretin, critic! <laughs> Robin loved preparing for the play. He was intellectually stimulated and allowed to improvise off the script in small doses. But when the show opened, some critics were offended by Robin's ad-libs. In six short but painful weeks, the play wrapped. Then another PR nightmare came back to haunt Robin in the form of his affair with Michelle Tish Carter. For a while, uh, he and his representatives and his lawyers had a certain amount of success keeping the legal matter contained within the courts or secret or just uh, not public. And then then they couldn't anymore. And then through a change of venue, it all kind of spilled out. Michelle had originally filed the case in Modesto, California. But in a tricky maneuver, her legal counsel moved the case to the San Francisco Superior Court, where it was discovered by news media and all of its messy details went public. Whatever happened between Robin and and Carter, it certainly did not look good for Robin. Robin was in desperate need of a truly uplifting project to counter these blows. The dead poets were dedicated to sucking the marrow out of life. Spirits soared, women swooned, and gods were created. Not a bad way to spend an evening, eh? That's Robin as the iconic and unconventional Mr. Keating in Dead Poets Society. I gave Tom Shulman, who wrote the screenplay, a call, and he told me about the first day filming with Robin. He left, and, and I said to Peter Weir. Peter Weir was the director. This is, feels a little bit stiff, and he said, yeah, I know, but we've got three weeks to figure it out. So when, we, when Robin came back, Peter had him do an improvisation, which is in the movie, where he just basically, he had the whole classroom was set up, had the camera set up, and he said to Robin, uh, if you could teach these students anything you like, what would you teach? And Robin said, well, I don't know, maybe I'd read to them from this a book. So they went and got a book, and he said, you know, and I could teach them a little bit about Shakespeare. And he came in the room, and I think he immediately realized 
you know, this is a lot, teaching is a lot like stand-up. Oh, you can do better than that. Free up your mind, use your imagination. Say the first thing that pops into your head, even if it's total gibberish. Go ahead. Uh, uh, a sweaty tooth madman. Good God, boy, there's a poet in you after all. There. From that moment on, he was, he was their teacher. You know, he knew exactly what he was doing, and, and he was using the dialogue of the script, you know, as, as his own. The final days of filming were bittersweet. Peter played Ennio Morricone's main theme from the mission right before shooting Keating's final lines. This was also a precious time personally for Robin and Marcia. She had been his rock for over two years now, and on April 30th, 1989, the two got married in a small ceremony on Lake Tahoe. And that's something that's going to rear its head later on, that the friends and the um, close uh, contacts with Robin's family are going to have to start to choose which camps they're going to be in. Are they Team Valerie or are they Team Marsha? There's a certain amount of people that are already in Robin's kind of personal orbit having to make this decision about who am I loyal to? Robin's home life is shaken up, but he truly believes that all of these family bonds will stay intact. He had two parents of his own who had been in previous marriages. He had his half-brothers who had come in and out of his life. So I think he came in with the expectation that certainly uh, Zach, who although Zach was his son with Valerie, Zach was still going to be part of the family with Marsha. I think it was more difficult for for Valerie in that sense that as much as maybe there was intent that she could also be part of that unit or that group she certainly felt exclusion from that that you know her involvement in Zach's life ended at Robin's door just over a month after the wedding, Dead Poets Society hits theaters for the busy summer season. Early reviews were respectful, but somewhat bemused. There was an earnestness, for sure, in Robin's performance in Dead Poets Society. It was very unlike anything he had done up to that point. But to see that movie sort of on its own before we knew all the other work that Robin could do or was capable of, you could also understand how people might arrive at that conclusion, that here, here is this guy trying really, really hard to be taken seriously, and maybe it feels even a little bit like pandering. What those early critics failed to see, though, was how an idealistic, rebellious, and tender coming-of-age story would strike a chord with mass audiences. By mid-September, Dead Poets Society was one of the top 10 highest-grossing films of 1989. Even Mr. Rogers praised the film, sending Robin a personal note signed, Gratefully, Fred Rogers. Still riding on this high, Robin and Marsha welcomed into the world a baby girl that they named Zelda Ray. A lot of people come up and say she named after F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife. No, <laughs> it's Zelda for The Legend of Zelda. Robin then learned his performance in Dead Poets Society was nominated for another Oscar, his second chance after losing out on Good Morning Vietnam. But Robin would be passed over yet again, this time in favor of Daniel Day-Lewis. So Robin threw himself into his next film, The Fisher King. It was a project he was keen on because it gave him the opportunity to work with his friend Terry Gilliam, who was directing the film. The Fisher King is fundamentally about... Uh, first of all, a character played by Jeff Bridges, who is a kind of a radio shock jock and who basically provokes 
uh, one of his listeners in, into committing this kind of horrific act of violence. And then Bridges' character gets introduced to Parry, who is this uh, vagrant played by Robin, this kind of wildly imaginative man, uh, really uh, kind of covered in a layer of grime and wearing really shabby clothes and... and lives in these kind of ramshackle places all throughout the city, uh, has no real home, and is obsessed with medieval sort of mythology and particularly the quest for the Holy Grail. Robin, who had become intimate with the plight of homelessness through comic relief, committed fully to the damaged character of Perry, who reminded him of those he'd met on the streets. There are these fantasy sequences where... Parry believes that he is being sort of chased through the streets by the Red Knight who's trying to kill him. And he has to, uh, you know, Robin as an actor has to really push himself physically to, uh, you know, literally run from the night and work himself into these states of kind of panic and terror as if he's being chased by this being that, that nobody else can see. Let me have it! Robin is literally being filmed on a treadmill and running fast and fast in place, not going anywhere, but running as hard as he can. And Gilliam would, you know, have him do a few takes and say, okay, Rob, that's good. And Robin would say, no, I can give you even more. I, I can I can play it harder. I can make it tougher. And Gilliam is saying, no, you've got to slow down. You've got to stop yourself. You're going to have a heart attack right here if we don't stop. But Robin couldn't slow down, even if he wanted to. He had committed to two big projects that would eat up any time that he had. There was Steven Spielberg's fantasy film Hook, where Robin played Peter Banning, a yuppie lawyer who neglected his family, something Robin could easily relate to. The other was Aladdin, where Robin's stand-up talent would be showcased through the animated Blue Genie. When things got really intense, he was basically filming Hook by day on the back lots and then going to recording sessions at night or staying in Barry Levinson's house and the Aladdin people are like coming over and going through songs with him or giving him the new script pages and yeah he's basically doing it like back to back. This hectic schedule finally ended in the summer of 1991. By the end of September, Robin was free to return home to San Francisco and play the role he wanted most of all, what he lovingly called the father-man character to his growing family. In just a few weeks, Martha gave birth to a baby boy named Cody Allen. It becomes incredibly important to Robin that he really establish a kind of stable home as Robin drifted into domestic life, he watched the reception for his latest projects. Critics lovingly embraced The Fisher King, scoring Robin his third Oscar nomination. But it would be Anthony Hopkins who walked away victorious. Meanwhile, Hook fell remarkably short of expectations. But it was Robin's performance in Aladdin that would become one of his quintessential roles, and also the one that caused him the most grief in the coming year. Aladdin! Hello, Aladdin. Nice to have you on the show. Can we call you Al or maybe just Din? 
But here's the thing, the big celebrity on whose back Aladdin was marketed did not want this to happen. That's Lindsay Ellis. She's a film critic and a YouTube star, and she made a video documenting Robin's spat with Jeffrey Katzenberg, Disney's motion picture head at the time, that went viral. At first, it was it, it seemed fine. Um, like the original teaser poster for Aladdin was this tasteful lamp with like, you know, a hand and there was no genie in sight. And then slowly over the course of the uh, ramp up to the release of the film, uh, you'd see more and more genie in the marketing until um, the, by the time it actually came out, that was like, all it was <laughs> and uh it was like in the trailers and uh like it, the the main poster for the film in particular uh what he asked was he didn't want to be in more than 25 percent of the marketing and so he's basically like mathematically the genie takes up 25 percent of that poster and he's like strategically looming over yeah. everything as a place and it's just like God enormous pressing. and it was like technically not a breach of contract but not the classiest thing for Disney to do. <laughs> and it didn't stop there. Robin said he didn't want his voice used in any marketing. So it was a surprise when he heard his genie character in commercials. He explained his rationale like this. I don't want to sell stuff. It's the one thing I don't do. In Mork and Mindy, they did Mork dolls. I didn't mind the dolls. The image is theirs. But the voice, that's me. I gave them myself. When it happened, I said, you know, I don't do that. We, we can infer that at least some of this was out of spite and Jeffrey Katzenberg doing a little bit of a flex on Robin Williams. Before Robin committed to Aladdin, he'd started working on another animation project called Fern Gully that Katzenberg wanted him to drop. When Robin refused, Katzenberg started sabotaging Fern Gully's production. As the film was coming out... Robin Williams did not do very much promotion. Um, the promotion he did do was, um, <laughs> I don't want to say passive-aggressive, but not not the most enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he got out of most of it um, when he got a Golden Globe, a special Golden Globe for his performance as Genie. Um, he gets up on stage and says not one word about the Disney company. He does throw some shade at Jeffrey Katzenberg. Uh, like, I, I, he just calls him Jeffrey Katzenberg and kind of, like, <laughs> waves <laughs> off. And then he, like, just does just basically a comedy sketch for 30 seconds and then leaves. I have some people I want to thank. I can thank Jeffrey Katzenberg. Um, and, it, and then, like, in the press, he effectively said that the reason for this is I was, I felt kind of betrayed by them. Like, it was genuinely an ethical infraction on their part. Um, and there was just sort of this press back and forth that went on for years um, where, like, Eisner would try to do a little bit of a mea culpa. Like, mm. um, he he pot, bought him a Picasso. Like, here's a Picasso, Robin a $1 Williams. $1 million. Dollar. Yeah, like, and then <laughs> Robin Williams was like, okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think at one point they, one of his friends, Eric Idol, was like, you should make a copy of that and then burn it publicly. <laughs> but it won't be the real one because yeah. that would be sacrilegious and horrible. But just to make a statement that this is not... <laughs> <laughs> what you're looking for. Oh my god, that would have been perfect. <laughs> it is interesting that it wasn't until 
uh, Katzenberg left the company that he started to actually work with them again. Robin's tiff with Disney wouldn't be settled until two years after Aladdin's release. After Katzenberg left Disney, his successor Joe Roth issued a public apology, admitting that they'd overstepped. Robin would go on to work with Disney again, and he would become a big reason for the secular shift to casting big Hollywood names in animation films. With the genie in particular, it really was lightning in a bottle, um, which is why it it's so beloved. And you just ever since you've just seen um, production companies just like trying and trying to recreate that magic. That's all for this episode of Knowing Robin Williams. When we come back, Dave sits down with Chris Gethard for a candid conversation. But I just knew, you know, standing backstage, I just had a grin on my face because... I just knew they're going to hear that it's Robin Williams and and I know what's going to happen in this room. If you like what you just heard, please be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If Robin had an impact on your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email at knowing at macmillan.com. I'm Christy Westgard, your host and producer. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.